This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have as our guest today, Bill Sargent, uh, also known as William. Which do you prefer? Uh, Bill is fine. Bill's good. Okay. Bill Sargent, who is the author of 27 books, his latest book entitled Crab Wars. Bill, are you there? I'm here. Thank you. Great. Great. Well, I, I looked over uh, some of your material. It's uh, this is quite uh, uh, this is coming out of for me. It's coming out of a dark hole. I, I knew nothing about any of this, and I'm enjoying okay. learning about it. And uh, terrific. Yeah. Um, but let me start with the uh, with the crab wars, and those are horseshoe crabs. Um, crab derivative known as Lemulus lysate. Multi-million right. dollar industry, bleeding horseshoe crabs. Elaborate some of that for me. Well, let's first start with the, with the horseshoe crabs themselves. Uh, and actually, I suppose we should start right at the beginning and say that they're not actual crabs. Uh, their closest relatives are spiders. So they're in the arachnid family. Um, and they look like something that uh, Steven Spielberg might have designed for his stormtroopers. Uh, they look a little bit like a low tank or a helmet, and you see them creeping along the, uh, along the shores, uh, basically uh, from Maine all the way down to the Yucatan Peninsula. So you find them all the way along the East Coast, uh, but you find the, the largest numbers of them and the largest crabs in, in Delaware Bay. And that's important because there are about uh, a dozen often endangered species of shorebirds that will actually time their migration so that they will be on the Delaware beaches when the horseshoe crabs are laying their eggs. And then they eat about 40 tons of horseshoe crab eggs. And then that gives them the energy to make the next uh, leg of their, of their trip up to the Arctic Circle so they can start laying their own eggs. That's amazing. It really is. Yeah. I, it's, uh, it's, go ahead. I, I, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic. It's, I think it's one of the most fascinating scenes that you can see in natural history. If you go out, um, you know, under a full moon, high tide in April, May, and June, and, um, you know, there'll be no, no noise. Uh, there'll be just a few little, waves rippling up along the shore. And then suddenly all these dark, small creatures start crawling up out of the water and go up on the, on the very uh, peak of the high tide. Uh, and the female will dig down and start laying her eggs. And each female will be surrounded with 30 or 40 lascivious male crabs that are all trying to uh, fertilize her eggs. Um, and then it lasts for a, about a half an hour, and then they slip back into the water. Uh, and it's, it's really quite, it gives you an incredible sense of creation, because this has been going on for the last 450 million years. 
And it was probably in waters like these where, where you know, life uh, was first created. That also is amazing. Uh, I know that Yucatan is part of Mexico. That's and, right. Uh, and I wonder, if, could they be, you know, in the local cafe, could they be in a, in a crab taco? Uh, no, nope. Um, you, you wouldn't want to eat a horseshoe crab. Um, <laughs> occasionally I get, I get asked to give recipes, you know, for uh, sort of local uh, cookbooks and stuff like that. And, uh, and so I talk about, a, a, you know, a horseshoe crab chowder and I talk about, you know, chopping up the horseshoe crab and then chopping up some potatoes and boiling the potatoes and some onions and when I right. finally get down to uh, chopping up a, a, a pound of, of crow meat, then I think people realize that they've been had. Um, <laughs> so no, you don't you don't want to eat a horseshoe crab. Um, uh, they they would be quite disgusting. Oh boy! Now tell us, give us some more about the million dollar industry in terms of bleeding the horseshoe crabs. Yeah. Well, um, basically anything that's going to come in contact with the human blood system, whether it's a syringe or a vaccine or the antibody tests that we're using for COVID now, all of those have to be tested to make sure that they're not contaminated with bacteria. And the way they do that now is with the horseshoe crab blood. Uh, and horseshoe crabs have a brilliant blue uh, blood, it's copper-based, so it's uh, blue, uh, as opposed to our own iron-based blood, which is red, of course. Um, and, and we have a whole system of antibodies uh, in, our, in our blood. So we have about 26 different cells that if we get infected, those cells will go to the area uh, and, and fight and fight the infection, kill the infection, and encase it. Do they have all kinds of different strategies for for dealing with with uh, microbes or infections that get into our bodies? What horseshoe crabs have is a single kind of uh, what's called an amoebocyte cell, and that simply those cells simply migrate to the area, moving like an amoeba, uh, and then they coagulate and they keep the infection out. So it's a very primitive form of immunity, but it's lasted, you know, for 450 million years, uh, and it's it's been very effective. So what scientists are able to do is you can bleed the the horseshoe crab. So what they do is you put them in a in a, uh, a wooden rack, uh, and then they have a little hinge between the two the, the two parts of their shell, and they put a, a a needle about the size that a veterinarian might use on a horse uh, into that uh, hinge, and then they allow for a free flow of blood. And after the blood stops flowing, uh, then they stop the procedure. And then the horseshoe crabs are returned back to the back to the water, back to the wilds. Uh, and it will take them about a month to uh, to reconstitute their blood. Um, so theoretically, there should be no mortality, but actually under industrial conditions, uh, the truck won't show up and the crabs will be left out in the sun and you may get up to as much as 50% mortality. Um, but Definitely so, work. <laughs> yeah, but so that um, each quart of processed horseshoe crab blood is worth about $1,500. And by the same token, uh, each horseshoe crab, if you keep it alive uh, and only use it for these biomedical purposes, 
each crab is worth about fifteen hundred dollars. Uh, so there's a there's a very you know lucrative fisheries that's been developed for the for the horseshoe crabs, and the collectors can make about you know one hundred sixty thousand dollars a year uh, mm-hmm. for just simply you know drifting around in a boat and reaching down and picking up the horseshoe crabs, um, and it's only they can only do that for four or five months, uh, and then they get to take the rest of the year off. Um, so, uh, so it's a multi-million dollar industry, uh, and there's also this incredible uh, fisheries uh, that, that goes along with it. So you have this 21st century biotech company that's producing the lysate, and it's supported by this, uh, you know, uh, fisheries that was, uh, you know, could have gone back to the 1600s. Uh, as a matter of fact, the horseshoe crabs were used for uh, fertilizer uh, in the, about the 1800s, uh, and they and they, you know, crushed up millions and millions of horseshoe crabs. Uh, if those horseshoe crabs had been kept alive and used for biomedical purposes, they would be worth billions of dollars. Uh, wow. So it's a you know it's a uh, a very lucrative industry. The interesting thing, the frightening thing, actually, is that the horseshoe crabs are disappearing up and down the East Coast. They're they're in decline, uh, and it's partly because they're used for uh, for the biomedical purposes. It's also because they have been used for bait. Um, So eel fishermen and conch fishermen will chop them up and and use them for bait. Um, But if you keep them alive, and use them for biomedical purposes, each crab is worth $1,500. If you chop them up and use them for bait, each crab is worth about 30 cents a pound. Uh, yet they've been, they've been continuing to do this. Um, but it, it shows you how fragile our, our whole health system is uh, because this, this is a, a, you know, one of the most commonly used medical procedures. I mean, every day, you know, uh, it's used hundreds of thousands of times in, you know, major pharmaceutical companies, in hospitals, in, in little tiny clinics. Um, and uh, it's absolutely crucial to human health. Uh, and if those horseshoe crabs were to disappear uh, or grow into, you know, start declining uh, more rapidly than they are, um, we could, you know, we could be in, in, in real trouble. Uh, so what is happening because of COVID, uh, the demand for horseshoe crabs has gone up quite dramatically. And because of that, the collectors are collecting the horseshoe crabs in, in places where they really shouldn't collect them. So what they're doing is they're collecting the horseshoe crabs in the shallow waters uh, while they're mating. Uh, and this means that not only are you you know, collecting the adult crabs, um, but what's happening is they don't get a chance to lay their eggs. So what you're doing is sacrificing the next generation of, of horseshoe crabs. And I think the the companies are willing to uh, take this risk because they realize that, that there's a synth- synthetic form of, of lysate that's been developed. And um, that was going to be uh, approved by the Food and Drug Administration, but they decided to hold off 
uh, for the during the pandemic. They didn't want to switch horses in midstream, as it were. Um, and I think what they're doing is they're just gambling. They figure that uh, that once the pandemic is over, the Food and Drug Administration will approve this, uh, and then their industry is is going to be kaput, and the fisheries is going to be kaput. And uh, so the horseshoe crabs will have another million years or so to recover. Uh, I'm not sure that we can say the same thing for, for uh, mankind. Not at all. Uh, so I, I assume that the, you're classified as an endangered species? Uh, no, they're not. Um, uh, no, there's, there's still a, a healthy population of the adult. Uh, and you can, you know, you can go out and you can collect them and do the bleeding and everything like that uh, with the adult crabs. And you'll look at a bay and you'll see the bay is absolutely full of, of uh, you know, large adult crabs. So you will think the population is very stable. What you don't see are the, uh, the tiny immature crabs. Um, mm -hmm. So what we've been doing actually for on and off for the past about 20 years is we have a group of students that will go down along the shore and right at this time of year they will walk along the, the rack line and they'll count the shells of horseshoe crabs because the horseshoe crabs mate uh, they they molt every year and um and so in a normal year you would get you know about 200 or 300 crabs in along a, a hundred foot uh transect uh, now we're only seeing two or three of these tiny little horseshoe crabs, which means that they've been, you know, over collecting them. And so we're not getting that next, that next generation of, of horseshoe crabs. Have, uh, has the state of South Carolina, now they have a, a separate rule. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Are, uh, are others following? Uh, no other state has followed it completely. Um, there are areas of other states. And what, what South Carolina has done is they've banned the use of horseshoe crabs uh, for anything except for biomedical purposes. Uh, so they can no longer be used uh, for bait uh, in South Carolina. I've actually mm -hmm. been pushing for this um, up here in Massachusetts and when I first started talking about it, I thought I was going to get a lot of pushback from fishermen. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, I'd go on radio talk shows and, and various things like that. And people would get back to me and they'd say, no, it's not a problem. Um, we, we, we can uh, use spider crabs or, or other species for bait. Uh, so they, they really didn't, didn't have a problem with this. There are places like the Cape Cod National Seashore and various uh, wildlife refuges uh, where it's illegal to go in and make a profit off of, off of any animal that you, you know, that you, that you uh, mm -hmm. capture in a, in a national park. Um, and um, so those, and those areas happen to be a lot of the areas where the horseshoe crabs are mating. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so those crabs are protected, but it's in those areas where people are starting to, you know, go in at night and, uh, and collect the crabs when they're, when they're mating. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, people don't see them. Uh, as a matter of fact, right. the director of the Cape Cod National Seashore, when she found out that this had been going on for about 20 years, 
she said, well, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, chase them in our pursuit canoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I see that um, you've written, or you did write uh, a book, Terror by Error. And it's That's the first right. book to look into whether COVID came about because of a lab accident in China. Um, That's right. How do the yeah. two books relate? Well, um you know, I think uh, from from looking carefully at the horseshoe crab industry, uh, I, I realize that, um, you know, quite often people will be cutting corners uh, and mistakes will be made uh, in the in the laboratory. You know, particularly, you know, when you have these high tech companies uh, where they're also connected, where they have to, for instance, have a supply of animals uh then and and there's a lot of money involved um then you're there then you're likely likely to see some problems um i was actually writing a uh a book about how biological warfare in this country uh was being used essentially what they were doing is they were weaponizing ticks uh so what they would to do was put uh, you know bacteria and various microbes into ticks um, there was one instance where a young CIA recruit uh, wasn't told what he was, uh, you know, going to be doing. He was just told to appear at a at a small airport, and and um, and he got to the airport, and there was a CIA plane there, but unmarked CIA plane, and they told him to get aboard. And um, there were two big boxes uh, in the in the plane. And they flew out at night. This was uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in the 1960s. And they flew out over uh, the Caribbean. And when they got over Cuba, uh, his commanding officer said, OK, now open the boxes in front of you and pour the contents out the door. And he opened up the boxes and they were teeming with hundreds of thousands of, of ticks. Uh, and he did what he was told and he threw them out the door. And about two weeks later, his son came, was very, very sick. He, he spiked the 105 degree temperature. Uh, and afterwards, uh, the recruit went to his commanding officer and, and he said, was there any connection be between what we were doing that night and my son getting sick? Uh, and his commanding officer said, well, I, I can't give you any details. All I can tell you is to burn all the clothes that you were wearing that night. Um, so that prepared me because I realized that, that, you know, we had had some problems in this country uh, mm -hmm. with what are called dual use facilities where they're doing both biological, legitimate biological research and, and uh, uh, biological warfare. So when um, and what happened in this country is, is those uh ticks were spread up and down the east coast by by shorebirds uh when i first heard that um there was a uh a new disease in wuhan china i did some research and i realized they had the only what's called level four biocontainment facility in the country uh and so i said well wow that's probably the same story that uh, we had here uh with a lot of these tick-borne diseases um, so I, I pushed ahead and, uh, and, and wrote the book as quickly as I could, and uh, it did turn out to be the, the first book that was written about the lab accident idea. And of course, when it came out, it was considered a conspiracy theory 
But in fact, it's it's exactly the opposite of a conspiracy theory, uh, because a conspiracy theory, you have to, you know, you have somebody or a group of people who are very, very smart and are, are pulling all the strings. I think what happened was a simple mistake. Um, they were doing what's called gain of function research, and they do this on, on uh, little animals called ferrets. And what they do is they you know, they, they put a virus into the ferret and the virus mutates and they keep doing that until the virus can jump from, from ferret to ferret, which means it can jump from human to human. And I think the ferret sneezed or the technician, uh, the ferret wiggled and the technician jabbed himself in the finger. And anyway, mm -hmm. he became patient number zero uh, mm -hmm. and you know, and spread the started the, the COVID disease uh, that has now spread all over the world. Elaborate a little bit for me, because I've been listening on, on, of course, on TV and Dr. Fauci. Um, exactly. You, you, you described the use of gain of function, but how do you get a gain of function? What is gain of, of function? Well, the function means uh, essentially the, 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 uh, the virus becomes contagious. Uh, so what they do is they, they take the virus, they put it into the ferret, uh, and it mutates, and they take it out of that ferret and uh, put it into another ferret, and it mutates some more. And each time, it's becoming a little bit stronger uh, and a little bit more contagious. Um, so they do this, for instance, they want to find out uh, what, what flu to make a vaccine for every year. Um, mm -hmm. And w essentially what we did is we outsourced uh, this kind of research, uh, research to China um, because we felt it was too risky to do uh, in this country. Um, but we wanted to keep on having it done. So what we did is we started funding uh, scientists in, in China to do, uh, to do this re uh, research. I see. I see. Well, that explains. That's that's helpful for me because I just kept thinking, well, what is it? What is it? What is it? But now yeah. I know. Yeah. Now I know. Uh, you have a chapter uh, in your book, uh, A Bizarre Incident, Chapter 15. Can you elaborate some of that, what a bizarre incident was? <laughs> You're going to have to remind me what it was. <laughs> <laughs> this was in May 23 of 2000. A bizarre incident, chapter fifteen. Uh, I'm 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 totally. I can I can remember the the title and um, right right <laughs> all right. Well, let me let me throw something more more recent. Uh, chapter twenty one, May 29, 2020, Three surprises. Uh, let's see. <laughs> You're throwing me because I I, uh, I come up with these little titles. Uh, and right, I, no, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I'm an author, <laughs> so <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's one you'll remember. In the epilogue, what were your afterthoughts? Um, well, I, I think, um, well, two things. Uh, with the horseshoe crabs, I think we have to, uh, uh, you know, make sure that uh, that we that we protect the crabs uh, until this uh, new form of, of lysate comes through. Um, 
in terms of, uh, you know, lab accidents, I think, I think we, I think the argument about whether uh, COVID came from nature or whether it came from, um, uh, from a lab accident isn't so important as what we do about it. So I think we should be acting as if both of these things happened, uh, mm-hmm. because if, if it came from a lab accident, then you want to have guidelines. You might even want to ban um, uh, doing gain-of-function research. If it came from nature, uh, then you want to stop encroaching on nature. Uh, and, um, uh, and you, you know, because if it came from nature, uh, it's what's called a zoonotic disease. And that's a, that's a, uh, disease that was, uh, initially of something like bats. And then you have what's called an amplifier organism, uh, which might be a, a bird or a, uh, or a pig, uh, which gives you a, an avian flu or a, or a swine flu, um, mm-hmm. And so I think we have to uh, we have to stop getting encroaching on nature so that we're interacting with the bats and with the other organisms that uh, uh, right. that might have have these diseases that could then jump to humans. Bill, tell my audience how they can find you and find your book. Um, let's see. You can uh, you can get by either of the books through your local bookstore. Uh, you can also also get them uh, uh, through my website, which is williamsargent.net, and you can also get them through the uh, University of Chicago Press. Aha, uh-huh. good, good. That's worthwhile. Uh, I want to thank you for, for enlightening my listeners. Uh, well, I'm sure they've thank, learned something today. Thank you very much for having me. And I've, I've learned something, too. And I'm, I'm going to go have... back and check out those chapters and figure out what it was I was writing about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Send me an email. <laughs> Ask Lisa for my email address. <laughs> Good. I'd like that. <laughs> well, I need to also thank my listeners for, uh, for listening in today. And, uh, of course, tuning into Searching for Integrity. Um, so long and happy trails to all. <laughs>